You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 23rd day of July, 2012. I'd like to welcome everyone back to the podcast and invite you all, as always, to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, that's C-O-R-B-E-T-T Report.com, where you can find previous editions of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos that I've created over the past five years that are available commercial-free and free to the public through the generosity of the subscribers and those who have purchased copies of my DVDs because they are the ones who help to support this and make this work possible. So a big pat on the back once again to all the subscribers out there. And I would also like to let people know this week about the feedback that I've received over the past week regarding the new server from eurovps.com. People might remember last week I was talking about the the server changeover that we had when our old server basically melted down. Well, the new server is up, it's running, and the vast majority of the feedback I've received so far indicates that it is a strong and sturdy server that is at the very least as good as the old one, and in most cases, from most of the feedback I've heard, is actually much faster than the old servers. So I'm very glad to hear that, and that means that we can continue on with the free servers generously provided once again by eurovps.com. And on another note, I would like to let people out there who don't know know that I am also appearing on the John Statmiller radio program every Tuesday on republicbroadcasting.org, and I'm appearing there on the second hour of that broadcast, so that's from 5 to 6 p.m. Central Time, and I'll let you work that out depending where in the world you might be listening, but uh, from 5 to 6 p.m. Central Time in North America, I will be uh, appearing there every Tuesday from now on, and we're talking about a wide range of subjects and I'm giving my insight uh, into that and uh, taking calls. So I hope you will join me there as well. And uh, other than that, I don't think there's a lot of housekeeping to go through, so why don't we get straight into today's episode? Welcome to episode 236 of the Corbett Report podcast, Peeling the Onion. If it is true, as the old adage would have it, that laughter is the best medicine, then surely the onion is is just what the doctor ordered. We have a story for you right now that is really going to get you steamed up. It's one of those abuses uh. of power stories. Today, the Make-A-Wish Foundation, you know them for yep. all the charitable yep. work they've done over the years, is expected to file for bankruptcy, all due to the financial strain caused by one little child's wish for unlimited wishes. You've got to be kidding I me. I wish I were kidding you, but I'm not. No, this kid, Chad Carter... He's an eight-year-old living up in Boston. He has leukemia. Uh, He took advantage of some bureaucratic loophole in the charter of this uh, organization and uh, and wanted nonstop wish fulfillment to the tune of nine trips to Walt Disney World for himself and his family of five, a real live F-14 Tomcat, which had to be decommissioned from Afghanistan, and daily hot dog lunches with Yankee slugger Johnny Damon as well as untold hundreds of thousands of dollars spent on fire trucks, dump trucks, regular trucks. And, and you know, the kid doesn't even drive. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Listen to how he responds to all this. I don't want the wishes to ever end. Can you imagine? Is there only himself to think of? And joining us now here is Make-A-Wish Foundation President Dean Fineglass. Dean, 
Our sympathies to you today, buddy. You are really in a bind, aren't you? Yeah, we sure are, but our slogan is, a promise is a promise. Because of that, our hands are pretty much tied right now. So, Dean, what have you thought of to do to, to fight this situation? Well, we had gotten a pro bono legal team, and, of course, Chad found out about it, and guess what? He wished away our legal team. It's He's very clever. He's got all the bases covered. Yeah. yeah. Every day I go in there, and it's, it's more outrageous than the day before. <sighs> is there anything our viewers can do to help? There is. They can send donations. We're asking just about for anything. I mean, if, if they have 10-speed bicycles, uh, volleyball sets, I mean, connections with celebrities. Right. Uh, the worst case is that we continue to grant Chad day after day, his unlimited wishes from now until the day he dies. Well, and we can only hope that that's coming soon. Well, unfortunately, Make-A-Wish is now responsible for the best oncology care for Chad, as that was one of his first wishes. Wow, this kid thinks of everything, doesn't he? Yes. Best of luck to you. We're hoping for you. Thanks a lot. Thanks. Well, if you're anything like me, you'll find that The Onion is more often than not quite hilarious. But more so than just the broad, general satire that's meant to elicit unthinking guffaws, it's very interesting sometimes how The Onion is really able to put its finger on the pulse of what is really happening politically through its own twisted brand of humor and satire. I'm Brooke Alvarez. Let's get right to our top story tonight. Congress today reauthorized funding for Facebook, the massive online surveillance program run by the CIA. According to Department of Homeland Security reports, Facebook has replaced almost every other CIA information gathering program since it was launched in 2004. After years of secretly monitoring the public, we were astounded so many people would willingly publicize where they live, their religious and political views, an alphabetized list of all their friends, personal email addresses, phone numbers, hundreds of photos of themselves, uh, and even status updates about what they were doing moment to moment. It is truly a dream come true for the CIA. Much of the credit belongs to CIA agent Mark Zuckerberg, who runs the day-to-day -day Facebook operation for the agency. The decorated agent, codenamed the Overlord, was recently awarded the prestigious Medal of Intelligence Commendation for his work with the Facebook program, which he has called, quote, the single most powerful tool for population control ever created. A new book called The Truth About September 11th claims to present evidence that the destruction of the World Trade Center was not the work of terrorists, but was in fact perpetrated by the U.S. government. With us, the much maligned book's author, William Gerard. Most of the mainstream media, they're just too afraid to even have me on, so thank you. Also joining us is Omar Al-Farouk of Al-Qaeda. He's an outspoken critic of what he calls Gerard's 9-11 conspiracy theories. Yes, Michael, uh, I assure you, that is all this book is, is complete nonsense. Mr. Gerard, how did you arrive at the conclusions in your book? W where are the facts well, through here? scientific examination of ground zero. For example, the melted core. I mean, that oh, was definitely evidence that there were thermite bombs that were used in bringing down those buildings. I can assure you, we did not use thermite bombs. I did the research myself. It would not have worked. We flew an enormous airplane into a building. Okay, I think it is obvious what caused the building to crumble. Why it are you is, being so close-minded to this, sir? If more how would you like the it? If you spent, you know, two months in a, a mountain cave, uh, sleeping on rocks, planning something really special, uh, only to have someone take the credit away from you? Say, oh, no, you don't the deserve the credit for it. Mr. Gerard, why in the world would the U.S. government want to stage this attack on their own soil? Greed, of course. And to increase the oil revenues, the weapons industry, and security industry. And these are all things that Bush and uh, his puppet master Cheney, they've got their stakes in. Uh, one final item. Uh, I've been informed that uh, the CIA has accidentally overthrown the government of uh, Costa Rica. 
the country was a thriving democracy, therefore the CIA intervention was a small mistake. Uh, for those of you who are interested in the details, uh, over the past several days, uh, clandestine American agents had been overthrowing various governments in Central America, including uh, Guatemala, Honduras, uh, Cambodia, uh, British Honduras, uh, Nicaragua, and uh, Panama. Uh, after the British Honduras overthrow, several of our agents met at a CIA airstrip in the Costa Rican jungle. And as they did not receive an official hold and do not overthrow order, uh, they organized an anti-government militia, of course, and proceeded to topple the government. Well, I imagine for listeners of the Corbett Report, some of those reports are quite interesting, even if The Onion is inserting them into the mainstream discussion under the guise of mindless humor. The point is that some of these ideas are being inserted into the discussion, and that must be some achievement in and of itself, no matter really what form that's coming in. But it does lead to some interesting questions. Uh, for example, I myself have noticed numerous times people posting stories from The Onion in various online message boards as if they were real. People not realizing that that ONN in the corner of the screen or the, the Onion means that it is a fake satirical story. And then running with it because these stories sometimes go so close to the bone, so to speak, politically speaking, that people tend to take them as actual reports. And this isn't something that just happens from time to time with crazy people on the internet. There are respected institutions and even governments that sometimes fall for the onion. An article in a series of tweets by the satirical newspaper The Onion did not amuse Capitol Police Thursday. The Onion tweets and articles spoke of congressional leaders brandishing shotguns and semi-automatic pistols, taking a class of school children hostage, and threatening to kill them if they didn't get $12 trillion in cash. It showed a doctored picture of House Speaker John Boehner holding a gun to a child's head and reported that Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid was firing a handgun and wearing a black pantyhose over his head. In a statement released Thursday, Capitol Police spokeswoman Sergeant Kimberly Schneider said, There is no credibility to these stories or the Twitter feeds. The U.S. Capitol Police are currently investigating the reporting. Facebook is another site being widely used by the CIA and Mossad for destabilization operations. According to a Department of Homeland Security report, Facebook has replaced almost every CIA information gathering program since it was launched in 2004. Fox News' sister site, Fox Nation, posted a link on their site to a story from The Onion that read, Frustrated Obama sends nation rambling 75,000-word email. Except nowhere on the site did they signal that The Onion is not real news, that it's just satire. And let's just say that this isn't the first time Fox has heard a fake story and then run with it. So what do we say for our media if they can't recognize a satirical news story from a real one? Well, whatever your thoughts are on The Onion, when it starts influencing the political discussion and the news cycle to the point where people actually start taking their stories seriously and getting confused themselves, I think it's time that we start looking at The Onion as the cultural phenomenon which it is. And I am loathed to be the one to start dissecting the humor and to poop on that particular parade and ruin the fun for everyone because there's nothing less fun than looking at why a joke is funny, etc. But I think we do have to start examining this humor and what effect it's really having on the populace. It does tie into one particular aspect of predictive programming that I personally find 
very interesting, and that's the question of, is there an antidote to predictive programming other than simply exposing the predictive programming that we've been subjected to on a regular basis for so many years through the Hollywood hype machine and all the other forms of media that we consume on a daily basis? For people who aren't familiar with the idea of predictive programming or what that is, I've covered that before on this podcast, so I would suggest you go back and listen to some of those previous editions of this podcast and my radio broadcast where I've discussed this at greater length. But let's start examining the idea of predictive programming and the antidote to it. Can humor, can making fun or mocking or satirizing some of these political issues be one outlet for getting deprogramming people and getting them out of that matrix and presenting them with ideas that they otherwise would never have. I think certainly there is that potential, but then I think there's a further risk of falling into the always satirizing but never actually bringing forth the real information. It's definitely a tightrope, and I'm I have been of two minds about institutions like The Onion and what role they're really playing in society for years now. So this is something that I, I come at with quite a bit of thinking behind, but unfortunately I'm still very much conflicted over what this all means and where it's going. As I say, I think it's something important to be thinking about, especially as uh, things like The Onion and, and other news comedy programs continue to to often make the news themselves as if they really are the news. And unfortunately, a lot of people identify themselves as uh, as people who only get their news through things like The Daily Show or The Colbert Report, which I say unfortunately because clearly they're trapped in that left-right political paradigm and will never lead people out of that into the promised land of the true understanding of our political reality. But at the same time, they do uh, sometimes cover things in a very intelligent and very uh, insightful way. So again, there is a two-edged sword here that I'd like to start examining more fully today. And in order to do that, I recently turned to the one man that uh, comes to my mind when I think about this type of media programming and what's really going on. And that's my good friend James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com. So last week, after recording our weekly New World Next Week uh, episode, we had a discussion on the media, for example, The Onion, and the other comedy shows which satirize and the political issues that we deal with in a serious manner here on the Corbett Report. So let's turn to that conversation and the discussion with James Pilato about how this works and really what this humor is doing in our society. So James, I don't want to be the party pooper who tries to analyze humor too much because that's never very fun, but uh, I think we both like The Onion, we both see that they, they do some very funny stuff sometimes. Uh, sometimes political, sometimes, of course, not. But uh, but I have been interested in the last few years and some of the things that they've been doing that play into, obviously play into some of the things that we talk about and that are usually derided in the mainstream media, but The Onion seems uh, fit to bring it to light in their comedy. So, for example... Um, one example that comes to my mind is, I'm sure you saw it a few years ago, they did a, one of their, their, their fake reports, and it was a congressman giving a speech about 
you know, um, he, he's giving a speech about the, this thing that, that, that's been censored, that's been redacted, and they can't talk about. And he's giving a speech on the floor of Congress, and he's saying, you know, redacted, 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 uh, aliens from, the, from above, redacted, redacted, to blow up the, you know, the Statue of Liberty, redacted, redacted, or something like that. It was a ridiculous speech. But I saw a lot of people in the wake of that actually spreading that link as if it was real and saying, you know, look at this, look at this speech that was given, and what are they hiding, etc., etc., which I th- it kind of blew my mind that anyone would believe it, but it is set. I mean, it looks real. They they do a good job with the production quality, so it actually looks real. So I, I mean, it kind of blows my mind that people believe it, but at the same time, they're obviously going for that kind of realism, which is which feeds into the humor. If it didn't look and feel and sound somewhat real, it wouldn't work. So I just want to get a conversation going about how what what you think how does this work what what does this do in the general mindset and how do how have people received this kind of stuff that you've met in your day-to-day life Well uh, first I I'd, I'd, I'd say you're right that over over yeah the the last just few years or so their their production values and their videos have all skyrocketed and and all look un- unbelievable and it's different than so, you know something like Weekend Update on Saturday Night Live, which I've always thought is you know Saturday Night Live is just the poor man's parody, and it's the easy targets, and it's you know so broad and and on the nose that no one would ever mistake the Weekend Update for for real news or any of the things they said on there for being real news. But you're exactly right; the Onion has the opposite effect, and I even find when I'm even occasionally telling someone about a story in the Onion. Even though I set it up and say, "Oh, there were you know a story in the onion," and they they'll still kind of reply to it as though it's truth. I think for a long time now, James, I've been kind of speculating on on my show about technological savvy, and that I would like to think that you know all of the bells and whistles and tools, and you know now there's you know James, there's kids less than half our age who are going to blow us away at doing all of this web stuff that we feel pretty good at right now. But the, I don't know, the more, the more time goes by, I guess it's like, damn, maybe people aren't getting more tech savvy because they still do seem to kind of fall for a lot of the same bits. I don't remember that specific uh, redacted congressman speech, but off the top of my head, I know one of the more recent ones and I think even had multiple installments. So I, I think one I would say for folks to make sure you subscribe to the the Onion video and also their radio feeds because there's pretty much something out of you know one of those every single day. But there was the story about I, I forget his serial number, but basically it was we're following the continuing story of the trial of drone number three four seven that a drone had been put on trial, you know, as we were following the court case, and it would, they'd talk to it, and it would say, I can't, I can't remember if it just I had... I think it just made the, the sound of the engine, right? Yeah, just the whirring of the, of the engine. And that is, is something that exactly we're dealing with now, as we've covered in the news, James, that, you know, the drones are here. There's no more like, oh, man, I wonder when the drones are... They have been unleashed. We're only now already finding out from the FAA and more that, oh, no, they're already around and they may very well be in your city. So it just, it just hits it so right on the nose. Um, their Onion radio piece, I think, today was... 
despite no natural disaster, millions fleeing Des Moines, Iowa. So on the one hand, haha, they're just kind of making fun of middle America and it's so boring. Why would you want to be there? But it also deals with the the extreme weather that everyone's dealing with. So I feel like regardless of what it is, it always has some really cutting, you know, commentary on on where we are at that very day. And that's to me what makes it important. It's true. And it, it can get away with saying the things that that, you know, obviously CNN or whatever never could, even though it's out there in the open and even though everyone knows it and understands it. And I think that's at least part of what makes some of these things so funny. So uh, there was the one recently about uh, it was it Facebook is uh, basically saying Facebook is CIA or tracking technology or whatever. And I, I don't even right now I'm just remembering off the top of my head. I don't even remember what the joke angle to it was. But I mean, it was just it was talking about Facebook and things like this being government run kind of uh, tracking technologies. And I remember that being the, the, the gist of it, but I, I don't remember even what the joke was. And it's just it's interesting because, of course, they can get away with talking about this stuff because it's in the form of comedy. It's all just a joke. Uh huh. I, I think it was basically saying the CIA is going to close down tons of bureaus and they're going to be able to kind of, you know, lay off a ton of agents because Operation Facebook has been (laughs) overwhelmingly successful. And they say, you know, Agent Zuckerberg, and they, you know, have (laughs) a shop thing of them shaking hands in front of the seal. And that's, again, you you have to wonder, it's like, so where's the joke? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it would be funnier if it wasn't true. But but I guess in some ways, well, in some ways, it's like a release valve. For, for people, because I think, as, as we say, so many people know this and understand this, and they'll never ever say this on, on any serious news, but if they get to say it on The Onion and make fun of it and, and show how, how funny it is, then people can kind of laugh at it and have that release and then never have to really confront the reality of it. So, I mean, in a way, it kind of almost plays into building up the system, even as it's making fun of it. I can just kind of pick up my my own show notes here in my folder because I basically, you know, I, I write out a lot of things by hand as I'm working on my episodes so I can just kind of flip back through and see some of the clips that I've used and I, I do use a lot of Onion radio clips because they're so short and they're and they're great to, to put on the radio show. So even just glancing back, some funny one about, you know, director Michael Bay, you know, takes high-octane trip to the grocery store, but it deals with groceries which we deal with on food world order it deals with you know directors who make amazing big predictive programming style pieces but it's just actually james <laughs> what well you- well here's my question then because in one way this this type of stuff can make fun of the system and can get people to laugh at it which i think can be healthy. I mean, the best thing that we can do with these dictators and puppets, really, that are are pretending to be dictators, uh, is to laugh at them and expose them for what they are, which is laughable. And everything they do is is just pathetic and laughable. So in a sense, I think humor and comedy can can be valuable that way, so that we actually just laugh at these people and treat them with the contempt that they deserve. But in another way, as I say, I think it almost bolsters the system because, again, it just if we just laugh at it and then just walk away and just let it continue, then all it does is just prop up the system. So, so we could look at something like a, a, a Stewart or a Colbert where every, every day, really, they're coming out with sometimes very insightful, very biting political satire, usually from the left side, but sometimes they'll even attack the left puppet. But 
it doesn't does that actually transform anything or does that just bolster everyone in their own self-righteousness and their belief that the other side is laughable therefore they never have to examine their own side and uh i don't know i mean i think for stewart and colbert i I just don't see how they're actually transforming anything um valuable in terms of their comedy I, I definitely here in the, the uber liberal Portland, you do see t- uh, so many people who basically think, well, I watch The Daily Show, so I'm completely informed. I don't have to watch any other news, and I know all the stupid things that that other phony political paradigm side is doing. But I, that is an interesting take, James, that it does it just maybe normalize it. Because you and I have talked about, you know, it's one thing to know that, you know, the events of 9-11 are a lie. And it's another thing to, you know, to know that all of these fraudulent things that our own research has, has bared out, but you have to live like it. So, you, you know, you've got, you've got to walk the talk. So it's one thing to know that 9-11 was an inside job, but do you live your life with that knowledge? You've got to know that Vietnam is about drugs and, you know, all of those kind of fundamental things that essentially build up, I mean, are the structure of American culture. You have to live your life knowing that those things are lies and that most of the institutions that claim they're going to take care of you are all completely full of it. So we have to live our lives knowing that, you know, these are the realities. And hopefully that's what great satire does and and can do. And of course, I would always want to throw in, I would think people like George Carlin and Bill Hicks are, you know, genius you know other modern day satirists in a slightly different you know forum but but still on it Mm -hmm. yeah i i agree i think you're right i mean i I think you're right ultimately i don't think we we can say that that comedy is 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 going to be good or bad or transformative or not transformative or serve the status quo or go against the status quo because ultimately it's just like any other tool right i mean it depends how you use it and how you incorporate that into your life so I think for some people, it is just a, a release. It's just mindless diversion and entertainment. And then they can go back to their day-to-day reality after the you know, half hour of that show is over or whatever. But, uh, but I, I, from the other side, the, the people who already know this and who are, have already incorporated this, I mean, maybe it is just a kind of a, hey, well, that's funny because it's true kind of um, knowing, knowing laugh that, uh, that we can get out of this political satire that's done well. So, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I guess I don't think there's anything definitive we can say about this other than it's what people make of it. You mentioned Jon Stewart in The Daily Show. And just, again, recently on my show, I played, and it was the same episode, played the recent clip from CNBC where the guests all basically go, oh, well, yeah, we're pretty much slaves to the central bankers. Ha, 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 ha. And there was a, another clip, and I, it was maybe the great clip of The Daily Show, breaking down Obama and his executive orders in Fast and Furious. I had made the note on the show, you know, it would be far more telling, however, if Jon Stewart would come out and say that we're slaves to central bankers. But I, I find it fascinating that his brother runs the New York Stock Exchange. So all these dudes, whether you're, you know, the Vanderbilt heir like Anderson Cooper and, and good on him for, for coming out, you know, and, and the social and the personal things like, I don't care, you know, be, be yourself. Again, if you're free, you believe that consenting adults can do whatever they want. But I don't think Jon Stewart's going to come out and say, hey, my brother, part of this phony scheme. Right. Yeah. 
No, because I remember watching John Stewart interview uh, uh, Jim Cramer. Is that his name? I don't even remember. <laughs> the Mad Money guy, Jim Cramer. Um, when he did that interview, it was it was truly some of the best TV that I think I've seen in years and years. And of course, I only watch TV on the internet now, so I guess I'm not an authority on it. But but it was truly truly very very interesting, very well done. And he actually asked the kind of questions that I would like to see interviewers actually ask these people, um, serious questions. And it was actually I mean, a fruitful conversation. And it was the kind of conversation that left me thinking afterwards, you know, if just more mainstream programming were like that, I think I would be a lot less, you know, motivated by my hatred of the mainstream programming, because at least, at the very least, there were some real questions and topics raised. And it was, you know, I mean, it's the big irony. It's the it's the joker. It's the clown. It's this guy who's not even pretending to be a journalist, who's actually asking questions that you would expect journalists to ask. But you're exactly right. I mean, underlying all of that is that it's not John Stewart, it's John Leibowitz, and his brother is the head of the New York Stock Exchange, and it's all this phony showbiz make-believe, and, uh, and we, of course, when they turn the lights off, I mean, they're all best buddies behind the scenes, so, I mean, you're exactly right, you're never, ever going to find that kind of, you know, truly questioning the, the fundamental paradigm in, the, in anything that's like this, anything that's become that big, or has that big a budget, and that's, I mean, to a certain extent, when you look at something like The Onion, you have to think. I mean, these guys have this huge budget, and, and now they truly look like CNN or any other, you know, news station. And uh, and what's what's underlying that as well? I mean, are they ever going to fundamentally question the paradigm or do something that really sticks the dagger in the heart? Of course not. I mean, it's all just going to be in good fun, and everyone shakes hands and goes home at the end of the day. So, uh, so yeah, I, I'm not... I'm not exactly looking for a comedic messiah here to, uh, to lead us to the promised land, but at least we can have a few laughs while we're getting there, I guess. Well, no definitive conclusion is possible with a conversation like that, but at the very least I hope that throws some of the ideas out on the table. So let's start examining those ideas and see what's really behind them. So, for example, we have the idea that in comedy, we can say things that otherwise would be immediately rejected by people. People have their guards up when they think they are getting involved in a political conversation. So if you go up to someone and start arguing with them about 9-11, for example, well, depending on what type of person they are and what kind of mental defenses they've erected against that particular issue, you may have, uh, well, a snowball's chance in hell of actually converting them to, to your point of view, not necessarily because of a dearth of evidence that you might have or factual information to back up the points that you're making, so much as simply their cognitive defenses against anything that would threaten their worldview. But humor can be one of those ways that you can slip past people's defenses. They put their guard up in so many ways that sometimes humor can be the thing that gets them to put their guard down for a moment. And in that way, comedians can sometimes get, get away with saying things that we could never say in a straightforward way in any other context. And one example of that that comes to mind for me was the brilliant example, I think, very brilliant performance that Stephen Colbert did in at the White House Correspondents' Dinner when he was, I think, really the only person during the reign of King George Bush, George W. Bush, to really, to his face while he was in office, really call him out on so much of the uh, the garbage that was happening in his administration. Now, obviously, this doesn't go into 9-11 truth or those types of issues, but within that mainstream paradigm, I still think that Colbert did a pretty good job of needling George Bush in a way that 
if he wasn't a comedian, he never would have gotten away with. Wow, what an honor. The White House Correspondents' Dinner. To actually, to, to sit here at the same table with my hero, George W. Bush. To be, to be this close to the man. I, I feel like I'm dreaming. Somebody pinch me. You know what? I'm, I'm a pretty sound sleeper. That may not be enough. Somebody shoot me in the face. Is he really not here tonight? Damn it. The one guy who could have helped. Um, by the way, before I, I get started, if anybody needs anything else at their tables, just speak slowly and clearly into your table numbers. Someone from the NSA will be right over with a cocktail. Mark Smith, ladies and gentlemen of the press corps, Madam First Lady, Mr. President, my name is Stephen Colbert, and tonight it is my privilege to celebrate this president, because we're not so different, he and I. We both get it. Guys like us, we're not some brainiacs on the nerd patrol. We're not members of the factinista. We go straight from the gut. Right, sir? That's where the truth lies. Right down here in the gut. Do you know you have more nerve endings in your gut than you have in your head? You can look it up. Now I know some of you are gonna say, I did look it up and that's not true. That's because you looked it up in a book. Next time, look it up in your gut. I did. My gut tells me that's how our nervous system works. Every night on my show, The Colbert Report, I speak straight from the gut, okay? I give people the truth unfiltered by rational argument. I call it the no fact zone. Fox News, I hold a copyright on that term. I'm a simple man with a simple mind. I hold a simple set of beliefs that I live by. Number one, I believe in America. I believe it exists. My gut tells me I live there. I feel that it extends from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And I strongly believe it has 50 states. And I cannot wait to see how the Washington Post spins that one tomorrow. I believe in democracy. I believe democracy is our greatest export, at least until China figures out a way to stamp it out of plastic for three cents a unit. As a matter of fact, um, Ambassador Zhou Wenzhong, uh, welcome. Your great country makes our happy meals possible. I said it's a celebration. I believe the government that governs best is the government that governs least. And by these standards, we have set up a fabulous government in Iraq. I believe, I believe in pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. I believe it is possible. I saw this guy do it once in Cirque du Soleil. It was magical. The greatest thing about this man is he's steady. You know where he stands. He believes the same thing Wednesday that he believed on Monday, no matter what happened Tuesday. 
Events can change. This man's beliefs never will. Some humorous gags in there, but also a lot of truth, I think. And uh, it did cut a bit close to the bone. And that's why there was so much negative press coverage of Colbert's speech after the fact, saying it was a hack job and no one was laughing, etc., etc. Even though I, I thought quite a lot of it was was very well done and quite hilarious, actually. But, uh, but of course, the press had to rally around their king, George Bush, after that and make sure that no one smears poop on his presidency other than, of course, the, the austere, the serious media class, the serious journalists. They're the only ones who can point out things like that, and if they're not doing it, then no one can. So, again, to a certain extent, that plays into and props up the system by playing into the left-right politics and into the, the idea that the president has any power beyond what he's told to do, etc., etc. But within that framework and within that paradigm, I still think that goes a long way to satirizing and mocking and exposing some of the... Uh, well, the, the real atrocities that were committed in the Bush regime. And, uh, and sometimes the best way to deal with a tyrant is just to laugh at him, because uh, in a lot of ways it's like the Wizard of Oz. If, uh, if you fear it, then it is something fearful. But if you pull back the curtain and just laugh at the pathetic nature of what's really behind that curtain, that gives you the power, and that puts the onus and the power back in your hands. So I think there is, even within that rigged, rigged political system, there is something to that, that satirizing and mocking of the system that is inherently healthy. Another example I would like to point people to of uh, comedians getting away with things that, again, they would never get away with in any other context well, for this uh, example, let's turn to Australia and the Australian political context where there is a comedy show called Chasers War on Everything that I would recommend people check out if they haven't already. It's not only uh, good in terms of political humor, but I think a lot of their humor is quite, quite very well done. And in some cases, they have really gone quite far, perhaps uh, over the line in any serious political context that would have gotten them in quite a bit of trouble. But because they're comedians, they can get away with it, and people can laugh at the system. But uh, it does beg the question, if someone as stupid as George Bush can get a seat at the APEC table to discuss the war on terror, then shouldn't we open it up to all the key players in world terror, like Osama bin Laden. Exactly. Where was Osama's invite? He should have been there at APEC. And who better to help him get them there than the most wanted people in the world right now? Julian Morrow and Chaz Lichardello. Let's do it. Look, $160 million they spent on APEC security, the biggest lockdown operation the country's ever seen, and yet there were holes in the security wide enough to drive three trucks, two motorcycles and four secret service guards through. <laughs> Top effort, blokes. Uh, let's have a look now at how it all unfolded. Talk us through it. OK, well, Osama likes to travel in style, mm. right? So we made a do-it-yourself motorcade, cunningly disguised with go. this Canadian go, go. flag. Oh, yeah. It's a modern-day Trojan horse. Yeah, but there are a few hints we were fakes, like our official code, SFA. <laughs> yeah, I don't think motorcades have had runners since JFK, especially not ones with handicap. But once we were rolling, nothing was going to stop us, except... Oh, fuck, we got a red light. <laughs> yeah, let him through. But yeah, cops don't keep Osama waiting, so watch this guy here. He stops the traffic and then waves us through. <laughs> 
Photo's amazing. No questions asked at all. On we roll. Right up to what they call the Ring of Steel. There it is. And didn't security jump on us? We stopping? No, you're fine. Oh. Yeah. Not too much checking at that checkpoint. Yeah, so look, we were just walking on down, right on down to the red zone. Now, that is the real no-go zone. But I'll tell you what. It's pretty relaxed in yeah. there. Look at this guy can't hear his back to us. I don't know what he's looking at. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, you know, the media said we got past a second checkpoint, but it, it wasn't really like a checkpoint. It was more like a guard of honour. Yeah. They're not too fast, are they? Yeah, now look, by this stage, it's become pretty bloody obvious the cops weren't going to stop us, so we decided to stop ourselves. Sorry. I'm sorry, I'm going to have to turn this around. We've got to go back. We've got to go back. Okay. Now, uh, at this stage, we've got much further than we ever expected. I think that's fair to say. And all of a sudden, we're trying to turn around a motorcade right in front of George W. Bush's hotel. Chaz, I was a bit worried. Yeah. But as for the cops, well, they weren't so worried. We'll just go back this way, okay? Okay, turn around. Turn around. Thank you very much. Thank you, officers. Good work. Great work. Well, they did say the road was ours. Ours to do whatever we like, apparently. So, uh, look, we've been in that car for ages, mm. so we thought we might stretch our legs a little. Okay, okay. let's walk. Let's walk. Yeah, all right, let's go. Right. He's walking with me. All right, come on, let's go. And I think this is when they got a bit suspicious. I think so, yeah. So, who are you? Officer Julian Morrow. VIP liaison. Okay. So here right. I am, Osama Bin Laden, staying 10 metres away from Bush's hotel. So what do they do? They arrest the other guy. And in other political contexts, we can find the same thing playing out. For example, fellow Canadians out there might know Rick Mercer and some of his rants from formerly This Hour Has 22 Minutes and more recently Rick Mercer Report. And sometimes those rants are actually somewhat insightful. When you walk around the grounds of Rideau Hall, Canada's official residence for the Queen or her reasonable facsimile, the Governor General, you can't help but be impressed. This is a very expensive piece of real estate. We're talking 79 acres in the middle of Ottawa. And this is not the only one either. Oh no, the Queen of England has official residences from one end of this country to the other. And I don't know if you noticed this, but the Queen doesn't really come over here that much. Which makes me wonder, why are we paying for all this? I mean, the lights are on, she's not home. But actually, that's the problem. She's at home in England, in another country, which begs the question, why is a woman in England the head of the government here in Canada? As the rules are now, if the Prime Minister wants to call an election, he's got to get up tomorrow morning, come over here, knock on that door, and ask the Queen's representative for permission. I don't think so. If I was the Prime Minister, I'd come over all right. I'd come over and tell the whole lot of them they had to be out of the house by the end of the month. We're not British people anymore. We're Canadian. Let's act like it. Let's get the Queen off our money and turn this place into a big park. <laughs> the British political context as well, of course, is no stranger to biting political satire and iconoclastic humor. And you could go back to, for example, the spitting image show back in the 1980s, or in a more recent context, something like uh, Charlie Brooker's screen wipe, which certainly takes no prisoners in its no-holds-barred approach to skewering and satirizing the news. 
There were tense exchanges between Lord David Camerabum and Edwardian Miliband, but we can't show them here. Thanks to the law, we're not allowed to use footage from inside the House of Commons or the Select Committee or the Leveson Inquiry. We can't show you Prime Minister's questions or Murdoch getting hit with a pie or Hugh Grant. None of that. But that's because we're classed as an entertainment show, unlike this week, which can use the footage because it's a proper current affairs show. Look, proper current affairs. Fortunately, however, we can bring you a theatrical reconstruction. So we have. Yes, for the purposes of this show, several stars from Made in Chelsea have sportingly staged a dramatic performance of parliamentary proceedings in the Hen and Chickens Theatre, Islington. For instance, here Chelsea's Ollie Locke relives the controversial moment David Cameron said, Calm down, dear. He's no longer an MP because he lost the election of the Conservative candidate. I'm afraid he is now a GP. <laughs> Calm down, dear. Listen to the doctor. See? Brilliant. Take that, the law. Well, I could go on and on and on, but suffice it to say, no matter what country you're living in or what day and age, there are always comedians out there that are willing to skewer the political establishment and the status quo and to speak truth to power in the perhaps with no, no larger quest in mind than simply garnering a laugh and getting uh, some guffaws out of the audience. But no matter what the motivation behind it is, I think it is healthy for people to be presented with the absurdity of some of the things that we're, uh, we're expected to believe, some of the propaganda that the political establishment tries to throw, shove down our throats. It is healthy for us to laugh at that and to really expose the political elite for what they are, which is really nothing more than or nothing less than the wizard behind the curtain and the Wizard of Oz. And the wizard is something to be feared if we are scared of it. But if we're not afraid and if we go and we peel back the curtain and we look at what's behind and we see it's just a pathetic person that we can laugh at who's uh, pulling strings and trying to confuse us and make us believe that they're all powerful. Well, once we can do that, then we have, in a sense, won. We have already won once we have slain the dictator in our minds that prevents us from looking behind that curtain. So I think there is something very important to this idea and the idea that comedy can slip in behind people's behind people's defenses that they erect all the time around sensitive political ideas and ideas that that really protect their identity and their worldview. So we've talked about the paradigm shift on, on this program before and the ways that people really have to to come to a completely different worldview and that's a very tra traumatic event in a lot of ways uh, especially when it goes to some of people's core ideas about the way the world really works and it's not something that people do lightly or transiently or very often in their lives so uh, we erect very powerful defenses against genuinely new ideas. And one of the best ways to slip around people's defenses and get ideas in through the back door, as it were, is through comedy, because people have their defenses disarmed when they're laughing at a subject and they're willing to hear new ideas in a way that they may, might never do. If you come up to someone, for example, talking about 9-11, no matter what names, dates, facts, figures, and documents you have at your disposal, no matter what evidence you have to back it up, it may not be enough to actually convince anyone of anything if they've already made up in their mind the fact that they're not going to listen to any anything about that subject. But if you've got a humorous approach to it, they might listen to it uh, in a different way altogether. So there is a positive side to all of this comedy, but I think there are 
potential negatives as well. Uh, Harkening back to that conversation with James Evan Pilato, perhaps all of this is just a steam, steam valve, just a release, so that, yes, we can laugh at the ridiculous absurdity of the propaganda that they're trying to shove down our throats, but if all we do is to laugh at it and then to go about our daily lives as if nothing's really different, then we haven't really affected anything. We haven't affected that revolution of the mind that I was talking about earlier in this po- the podcast a few episodes ago that is the true political revolution we're seeking. So it has to go beyond simply the, the comedic. It has to find some, some deeper meaning and, and people eventually have to want to go and look up the actual facts and get the documents and the evidence and put the pieces together, which is a slower and more laborious and considerably less fun process, but one that I think you'll agree we have to go through, which is why I do that on a weekly basis here on the podcast. It's why that I often will sit here and present uh, events and names and figures and dates and, and put that in front of people, because I think that is ultimately what this is all about. But once again, perhaps comedy is the way to to get us from here to there. Where there are a lot of people out there who, as I say, have their defenses built up, and if they're willing to at least peek up over that wall that they've built and erected around their their treasured ideas, because of the comedy, well, then that's one way to do it. So there is the steam valve uh, question, whether it's actually going to affect anything or whether people will just find a way to incorporate the absurdity into their lives and use the humor as a way of laughing at it and recognizing it and exposing it and then continuing on with their lives. So there is something of a balance here. I think there is the possibility of a two-edged sword, but again, it is just a tool like anything else. It's just a tool that we have in our Infowar armory that we can pull out and we can use for particular situations to reach particular audiences about particular subjects. So I'm all for the uh, knowing and understanding your audience and who you're trying to reach with any particular message. And that's the best way you'll ever be able to affect people's minds is not simply to go in with the one-size-fits-all approach, but to adapt for different situations and to have a variety of approaches. And again, not everybody does have a variety of approaches. Some people are genuinely funny and funny all the time, and some people couldn't wouldn't know humor if it hit them over the face with a dead fish, uh, a la Monty Python. But uh, whatever the case may be, again, I'm not saying one person has to be all, all men to all people, but I think we need to incorporate different strategies and, and at least be open to different ways of doing things on the media level like this. So what does this all mean? Well, for for my own perspective, I myself have done a few explicitly comedic videos. And this harkens back to at least 2008 when I did a comedic video on the occasion of the release of NIST's final report on WTC7, which is a travesty of science, is a ridiculous report, and anyone who looks into it and looks at what was really concluded there and how it was concluded and what was left out, etc., etc., will know that that was a shoddy report by any stretch of the imagination and not something to take lightly, but Given the absolute absurdity of what they were trying to put forward, and especially the absurdity of that press conference with Sham Saunders, I mean Shyam Saunders, the NIST representative, it was so absurd in and on its face that I couldn't find any way to seriously present that information. I wanted to show the absurdity. So I made a humorous video called An Emergency Warning to Office Workers. It's up on YouTube. I think it's got, garnered somewhere in the neighborhood of 80 or 90,000 views by now. 
which is considerably more than any serious video that I would have put out on the su subject would have garnered. So there is something to that. It did reach out to people and people did pick up on it, mostly I think within the 9-11 Truth community. Because once again, it is so absurd that it really is self-parodying. All you have to do is take what NIST was saying and put, put it to its logical conclusion and it becomes something of a joke. So that was the take that I, I took on that and uh, I think it was effective for what it was. It's a short video, it's humorous, but it it does go to the real issue of WTC7, what that's about. So I, I put that out there and people responded warmly to it. Uh, fast forward to 2011, the 10th anniversary of 9-11-2001, I put out a video, a very short, under five minute explanation of the official conspiracy theory of 9-11. Probably most of you out there have seen it. It's called 9-11, A Conspiracy Theory, and it is, uh, as we speak, it is approaching 1.5 million views on my own channel, but it's been mirrored on many, many other channels and been seen all over the place there, so I'm sure it's over 1.5 million views in total by now. And that has definitely become my most popular video and probably the single piece of media that I'm most well known for. And uh, that, to me, is, is interesting, and it's something that I've lamented in other contexts before, saying that, well, it's kind of ironic, isn't it, that I do all of this serious factual information that I put out, and I really put a lot of laborious, detailed work into getting the facts and, and putting documents out and, and linking to them so that people can follow them, etc., etc., doing all of that work when a short five-minute pithy kind of take on 9-11 gets more views than anything else I've ever done. In a way, that's a, that's a sad thing because there's obviously much more to be said and in much more depth and detail, and it's a very serious topic. But to a certain extent, human nature is human nature, and if people respond to the humorous uh, presentation of those facts, then at the very least, it can open up people's minds to taking a look at the information. And once again, I speak uh, from experience on this, not only in the comment section of that video, but also from emails I've received. I've heard over and over and over again a, from people who have never looked into 9-11 but saw that video and thought that that was, that was interesting and they wanted to know more, or B, from people who know about 9-11 but have never been able to reach certain people, but they show them that video and those people became interested in what they've been talking about all these years. So there is something about humor as a way of unlocking people's minds when it comes to subjects like these, and I can speak from experience on that. I tried, again, earlier this year, I put together a video called uh, Stuff a Government Says, to use the PG version, uh, that's up on YouTube. And uh, once again, it, it did fairly well. It got 20 or so thousand views, which is more than most of my serious videos get. And uh, it was just a compilation of ridiculous, stupid things that politicians say. And once again, laughing and mocking the political class that deserves absolutely none of our respect and doesn't deserve to be treated with the seriousness and the sobriety with which we treat every pronouncement from government as if these clowns who presume to rule over us really are anything other than clowns. So once again, I think I, I consider that to be a, a success because it did what I wanted it to, to do. But uh, I'm going to try again. Right here on this podcast, I'm going to premiere a brand new video that I've just made. It's hot off the press. And so before I even put it on YouTube or anywhere, I'm going to put it in this podcast so you can watch it. It's called How to Foil a Terror Plot. And the long and short of it is that for years now, I've wanted to put together a video uh, or a documentary or a project or a report or a podcast episode or an article or something detailing the numerous times, the, the times more than I can even count, that in the last 10 years that the FBI has gone into a, a domestic group of some sort of usually a ragtag band, band of 
mental uh, deficients who couldn't tie a shoelace if their life depended on it, given them money, given them funding, giving them equipment, giving them guns, etc., trained them and uh, set them up to do some sort of dastardly terrorist plot and then busted them at the last minute, swooped in and busted them and saved the day. And of course, all the headlines, oh, big terror bust by the FBI, etc., etc. And it's Again, it's one of those subjects that there is so much evidence and so much documentation to to do on this, but the subject matter itself is so absurd, it's so stupid, it's so ridiculous on its face that it's another one of those subjects, if you just tell it the way that they expect us to believe it, it makes fun of itself. So instead of putting together that dry, documented, uh, laborious, detailed report on the subject, I decided to put it in a short, pithy, humorous video that, again, I hope will reach out to people and will unlock some minds on this subject. So I don't know. I don't know if uh, it will strike that chord. Who can ever know if it will ever, if any particular thing will will hit that uh, particular zeitgeist, to use that much co-opted word, or not. Maybe it won't. But at any rate, I'm putting it out there. I'm hoping that it will at least resonate with some people who do understand there is something deeply, deeply wrong with these FBI terror busts that are going on. So uh, who knows, perhaps in the future I will do that documented, uh, dry, sober report, the the very serious report. But for the moment, let's just put out this uh, humorous video and see how people respond to it. Because again, I have a feeling it will reach out to more people. And more is not necessarily better. I'd rather have quality over quantity. But if we can at least start to expand the, the audience and get more people interested in these subjects, it can't be a bad thing. So on that note, I'll uh, stop yapping about it and start showing it. It's uh, it, it may not be your sense of humor. It's certainly my sense of humor. So take it for what it's worth. And I'll put the censored version on this podcast because this podcast gets played on radio stations, etc. But for the uncensored version, you can go to YouTube or Blip. And I hope that if you like this and if you think it's valuable, I hope you'll spread it around to other people. Here it is, my brand new video, How to Foil a Terror Plot. Are you the head of a large homeland security bureaucracy whose funding depends on your supposed ability to foil large-scale terror plots in spectacular fashion? An attorney general in hot water over knowingly selling guns to Mexican drug lords that resulted in thousands of murders? A White House official who's worried that the public is just no longer scared by turban boogeymen? Well, today on the How To Podcast, we tell you how to foil your own terror plot. In order to bust a fake terrorist cell that you yourself funded and created, you'll need a bunch of total with intelligence in the bottom quartile, preferably homeless people, as they can more easily be bribed with food and rent money. Money for bribing, equipping, and supporting your fake terror cell, although this can obviously come from the taxpayer funds you have access to, an FBI or government informant, and a suck lapdog corporate media that will breathlessly report everything you say as gospel truth without the slightest bit of skepticism. Once you've assembled these ingredients, you're ready to begin setting up and then busting your very own fake terror threat. Step 1. First, Gather your team of low-grade morons at the local bus station or abandoned warehouse. The suspects are Midwesterners who said they wanted to strike out against corporate America. Federal prosecutors say this man, Rezwan Fardas, a 26-year-old American citizen, wanted to help al-Qaeda kill Americans. Well, Don and Christine, a federal investigator, say the suspects are four men with a shared hatred for America. Although the seven suspects are described as al-Qaeda-inspired, law enforcement sources tell CBS News there is no evidence tying them to any terrorist group. Step two. Next, give your crack squad of intellectually challenged... It's a prescripted terror plot to aim at. 
Keep in mind, the more ridiculously implausible the plot is, the more likely it will be to generate those much-needed headlines when you later swoop in and pretend to bust them. They plan to blow up the heavily-traveled span over the Cuyahoga Valley National Park. The alleged plot is chilling. Fardis wanted to pack large remote-controlled model planes with C-4 explosives and crash them into the Pentagon and U.S. Capitol. Allegedly led by Narsil Batiste, the group had visions of raising an Islamic army pledged to Osama bin Laden, and according to the government's indictment, was conspiring to provide material support to al-Qaeda and wage a full ground war against the United States. And though it reads like the pages of a Hollywood script, the impact would have been very real, and many lives would have been lost. Step 3. Finally, have your pre-planted FBI agent or government informant provide this band of patsy troglodytes with all of the supplies and equipment needed to proceed with the fake plan, regardless of whether or not they would ever be able to actually acquire any of these provisions without your help. The FBI began its investigation last year after it says Fardis told an informant about his desire to wage jihad against the U.S. The FBI sent undercover agents posing as al-Qaeda recruiters to meet Fardis. Prosecutors played video of Hussein and four alleged would-be bombers planting what they thought were explosives outside of Jewish houses of worship in the Bronx in May of last year. The devices were fake and supplied by the FBI. Aided by an informant posing as an al-Qaeda operative, federal agents captured these grainy images of the group's meetings held in this rundown warehouse in one of Miami's poorest neighborhoods. Step 4. Now go in and arrest the clueless you funded, trained, and equipped. If you've done everything just right, the government toady media will report everything you say about this ridiculously unlikely terror plot as if they were golden jewels of truth dripping from the mouth of Jesus himself. U.S. officials say they've smashed an Iranian plot to bomb Saudi Arabia's ambassador in Washington with paid help from a Mexican drug cartel. Motivated by hate and bent on killing their neighbors. Investigators say the four men from our area used their faith to justify planned attacks on houses of worship. John Miller is joining us now. John, how does blowing up the bridge further their fight against corporate America? Well, it's a little muddled, Scott, but their theory was that, A, it would force the government to put security on every bridge in the country, and that, that would cost money, and that, B, it would mess up traffic and keep people from getting to work at those big companies. A lot of people say these guys who wanted to blow up the Sears Tower and FBI buildings are just a collection of misfits and wannabes, nothing to worry about. I think this is actually an update of the Islamic extremist plan for the perfect day. Pro tip. If anyone from the media bothers to press you on any of the actual details of your fantasy scenario, admit everything, change the subject, and pray that no one notices. Did the uh, 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 man have any actual contact with any members of Al-Qaeda that you know of? Any... The, the, answer, to that, the answer to that is no. Did you find any explosives, weapons? No, and you raise a, a good point. This has been a public service announcement from the friends of the FBI, DHS, and DOD, helping to keep America stocked with would-be non-terrorists who can't tie their own shoelaces since 9-11-2001. Because ignorance is strength. Well, there it is, folks. My new video, How to Foil Your Own Terror Plot. 
I trust that that puts forth at least some of the information on that topic in a way that people will instantly understand and see the absurdity of it, and hopefully people will laugh at it. Hopefully it'll strike a chord with people and it will get spread around, but who, whoever knows what will take off and what won't. At the end of the day, I'm just happy that I'm putting this information out there, and I hope that people will pick up on what they find interesting and will start looking into it, and that's all I can ever ask. And uh, on that note, I'm, I'm sure at some point I will put together a serious uh, podcast or, or article or radio program or something on this topic where we can go into more depth about specifically what they've done and how they've done it to flesh those points out and to show people that there is real documentation behind this. But at any rate, this is a, this is a subject that, I, as I say, I think is self-parodying, so I've parodied it and I've done my best. So now it's up to people out there to help uh, spread this the word about this information. So once again, I guess the point for today is comedy. Sometimes I think it is beneficial. I think it can be a way of reaching out to people. It's certainly not something that I'm going to do uh, overdue. It's not something I want to do on a, uh, you know, every every week or every month or whatever basis. But I think from time to time, as uh, as the uh, appropriate material arises, I think it can be one way of reaching out to people. And uh, once again, I've probably overanalyzed the subject of comedy to death, so uh, I hope I haven't spoiled too much of it for you. But, uh, but it's just something else to think about when we start thinking about media and how it can be used to influence people positively or negatively. And on that note, that's all for today. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report. Who can give a bailout? Tell us to behave. And make the founding fathers roll over in their grave. I don't care if you hate me, I'm going to sing it anyway. Oh, the government can. And the government can. God, and mix it up with Isaac.